Welcome to the newly genetically modified podcast. We're not. We're organic. Uh, you're organic. We're completely we're organic. Gluten free. So you have gluten. Oh, yeah, dude. I like gluten. Dairy I even ate, I eat. I even ate fish. But the fish that I like. I the, even ate fish, which has nothing to do with any of this. <laughs> they were like, they're like, this fish is really good, but it sometimes is high in mercury. Oh dear. You know, I was like, I was like, good who, thing who, I'm not who are they? Um, the internet. The fish dealer <laughs> <laughs> on the street from his van. I like that. I got it. some tilapia, man. <laughs> Come here. Welcome to the Word on the Hill. My name is Father Peter Muzzin. My name is Scott Powell. We're the lanky guys. And uh, and uh, we are so excited to have you join us for the third Sunday in Lent. More excited than we can express <laughs> with words. <laughs> Do you know that that sounded so snarky? I know. The both of I us. didn't mean it to, but it did. It, so. it just well, I kind of meant it to, but I, I still mean it. It's yeah, still yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, it's true. We're we're both a little hopped up on Lent. Dude, right now. You know what I'm saying? Let's... Literally, we had to start the, the podcast over because I was laughing like Woody Woodpecker. Yeah, well, it was weird though, but it was it was all it was a maniacal barely, Woody Woodpecker. It was a Woodpecker. maniacal Woody Woodpecker. So it's the uh, third Sunday of Lent. Our first reading is from Exodus mm. chapter three, one to eight a, then thirteen to fifteen. Yeah, we do a little a little jump. Our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 103, verses 1 through 2, 3 to 4, 6 through 7, 8, and then 11. And the response is coming from 8A. Take that. That's the Canadian response. 8A. 8A. All right. Second Corinthians is first reading. I mean, none of those things match. Hold on. Second reading is first Corinthians. Ah, now Strike that, reverse it. I was Willy Wonka-ing that one. Did Willy Wonka do that? Yeah, remember remember he'd be like, strike that, reverse it. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, so we got First Corinthians ten one to six chapters. Uh, I mean verses ten to twelve. See, this is the Lent brain. This is the same way I caught what you have. Sorry, I'm like I can't even speak the words. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to rub it off on you. Our gospel is coming from Luke, <laughs> chapter thirteen, verses one through nine, all about buildings falling down. Build? Oh yeah, yeah, and towers. Stuff has fallen. Did the fallen falling? Falling. Dude, I used to listen to a band called Einstrusende Neubauten. Sorry, one more time. Einstrusende Neubauten. Can you give us a Google translation on that? Uh, this was the thing is I kept on asking German people. I would be, I would go to them <laughs> and I'd be like, what is Einstrusende Neubauten? Because cause like one of my favorite punk rock artists when I was younger had an Einstrusende Neubauten tattoo on them. Really? Yeah, so then I found And it them. means like my dog has pigtails or something. It says, right? it's, in, it's, it said roughly translated, it's a very poetic kind of phrase, but it says a... Uh, New architecture must fall, or falling oh. new architecture. Oh, interesting. So it, that's so, kind of like the the gospel reading today. Yeah, in a certain sense. Yeah, but this band used to go and they would play their concerts in junkyards, and they would just go and they they were an entirely atonal, non rhythmic musical thing, which is like <laughs> what everybody thought of in the nineties is of like it's just like it's, it's like edgy because it's not actually music. <laughs> it's, they just would pick stuff oh up and gosh. rub microphones on shopping carts and stuff <laughs> like. That's the okay. It was, See, now I'm feeling old, <laughs> and I'm like, "That's a terrible use of microphones and shopping carts." <laughs> Dude, yeah, they oh, would yeah, yeah. they would show up like five hours late to concerts and stuff. And what? Just no, they around. would not. Oh yeah, yeah, no. Einst- ca- I can't. Einstein and the was like was oh. like the end of the line, man. If you ever want to feel old, have a conversation like this. It just it, it's like hurting I, inside of me. Like this is all useless. <laughs> Don't these kids have better things to do with their time? 
I'm sure you have some homework that you're not doing. Like all of these things are welling up in me as you're saying this, and it's really disturbing me. I used to be young and cool. I used to do cool things. Oh my gosh, I can't even handle how much you're making me laugh. It's really hurting. Okay, oh, okay. let's talk about Exodus. <laughs> Exodus. Oh, see, there, that is... was the Woody Woodpecker. I didn't mean to do ha, that. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> that was less maniacal, though. Yeah, your maniacism is uh, diminishing. Hey, very good. So Exodus, man, um, I just, okay. Yes? I just have to say, dude, um, in Greek, Jethro um, was, it just, hold on, how you keep talking. I have to get, I have to get I'm to not, this. Oh, oh, uh, I thought you were accusing me of talking. No, no. I, well, so I, this is, so Exodus, the story of Moses is split into three chronological chunks of 40 years each, Okay. So the first 40 years really? of Moses' life. It's 120 years? It's 120 years. That's how old he was when he dies at the end of Deuteronomy. Oh, so we got 40, 40, 40? So yeah, so check it out. 40 years he spends being raised in the courts of Pharaoh. You, you know the story of Moses, right? His, it, was, it became illegal to be born as a, as a Hebrew baby. Pharaoh tried to kill everybody because he was threatened. Uh, Moses' life is spared. He's put into this little ark. He's taken to the courts of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's daughter brings him in. His own mother becomes the wet nurse. It's this beautiful story. And so he grows up for 40 years in the courts of Pharaoh in, in kind of luxury. And then something happens where he recognizes the oppression of the Israelite people and the Hebrew people. He stands up to the oppression. He kills a guy who is, who is brutally abusing one of these Hebrew slaves. And now he's committed a capital crime and he's got to run for his life. And so he goes out to the wilderness and he finds a job tending flocks. And he'll spend the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd in the wilderness where he'll eventually meet his wife. He has this father-in-law named Jethro and he's a shepherd for 40 years. And then for the last 40 years of his life, God will call him to go back to Egypt and be not a shepherd of flocks anymore, but a shepherd of his people as God sets them free and he shepherds them through the wilderness to the promised land. So 40, 40, 40. So we're entering into section number two of the three forties. Does that make sense? Yep. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yep. I'm just how you asked me to start talking while you found whatever you were looking for. I, w- I was so intrigued by what you were saying that were I stopped you? Because looking. Because your facial expression did not convey that. <laughs> it's cool. What's up? I, um, you stopped looking? You yeah, I stopped right, looking because well, you don't even know. One of my very favorite things in the whole world is when people summarize and tell the story of scripture in a kind of an oral tradition way. Yeah, is that what I just did? Yeah, you did. You were like, you were like, very oh, rabbinic. you just did the, you just did the th- three phases of Moses' life in under two minutes. Like, <laughs> I'm like, dude, this is, I'm loving it. Oh, I, good. Oh, that makes me happy. That's why I, well, I don't know what my face was saying though. No, you were just listening. <laughs> All right, so there's Moses. He's tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Okay, why is Jethro? Um, which, by the way, what an interesting name. I mean, if you have, if, like, I always feel like if your if your name is Jethro, yep. that you're a fundamentalist in Virginia. Probably not if you were a Midianite in the 4000s BC. Right. I'm just saying. It's a little bit of a different era. It might era. have been a different era. But it, why do you think Jethro was out living in the wilderness? Because, I mean, he I, is, I don't know if he is living in the wilderness. Moses is in the wilderness because that's where the flocks are. They, I'm sure they live in a village. Um, he's from Midian, which is actually related to Egypt, which is actually interesting. Midian, the, the Midianites um, are familiar in scripture because that was the group... 
that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery to. Remember, oh, there were yeah. a group of Midianite traders who were headed down to Egypt. And so he sold them to them. So that's actually one of the reference points. I mean, I, I don't think there's it's worth reading into. He's a, he's a foreigner. And part of the point is that Moses goes outside of the people of Israel where he, in, in a certain sense, he's a subtle little icon of where salvation history is going and that it's meant to go out to the nations. And actually Jethro, who is, again, a non-Israelite, is going to be one of the most important advisors to Moses as right. he enters into this really difficult job. Oh, absolutely. He starts to so tell sh- him how to, like, actually, he, his father-in-law is like, dude, you're going to wear yourself out. you got to get all these absolutely. people to help you do judgments. And it, it's sort of showing that the wisdom of God and God's will can be at work outside of the people of God in order to bring the people of God closer to where they need to be. And he's obviously mm. brought into the family later on. But that's actually an important point. That's actually a good starting point because, so here's Moses. He's out tending the flocks. Yeah, and, and again, they probably live in a village somewhere out there. It's somewhere outside of Egypt. Um, but the, he's leading his flocks on the, across the desert, and he came to this place called Horeb, which is called the Mountain of God. And Horeb, do you know what the word Horeb means in Hebrew? I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Um, uh, is it when something's like really, really bad, it's like horrible? <laughs> oh, come on dude i totally got the, the you fact that, that you owned it so well is what was so good um first of all i just need to say for for the sake of all of your confusion later reading on reading the bible horeb and sinai are used interchangeably throughout the bible okay so horeb is the same thing as mount sinai no there, there's a couple, horeb literally means dryness it's the dry place. So where is he? He's in the desert. Oh, but he's in the dry part of the desert. So, which okay. is just kind of showing it's exceptionally dry wherever he is. Is is it kind of like nose and nostrils, like Horeb Sinai, or like <laughs> nose and sinuses? Again, you really owned that. <laughs> you really owned I it. I know. I'm sorry. I just, no, it's good. I was just working with you. Some people so think it's the Horeb, dry place. Well, some people think Horeb is the region and Sinai is the mountain. Or the range in the mountain. We're not sure. I actually think that Horeb was the mountain whose name was changed because Horeb means dry. Sinai comes from the Hebrew Sena, mm-hmm. which means burning. And I think it was thus named oh. because of the burning bush, which is the, the passage that we get today. So he came to but Horeb, it's called both. the mountain of God. Now, yeah. now is it, do we, this feels it's like. It's not the mountain of God yet. yet That's a reference exactly. point from the author pointing out, hey, right. just so you know. That's where we are. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay. Which is like almost in parentheses, like nudge, nudge. Right. That's the mountain of God. Yeah, so there he is. Um, what was that was that the question? Yeah, yeah okay. I'm good. Uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the fire flaming out of a bush. So I always thought that it was God himself and not an angel that was that. Which you is, know, I, I read that this time and I was just kind of surprised by the angelo. This is where the Pentateuch is a little bit weird. Whenever God's presence shows up, it will, it will kind of pass back and forth from saying it's either God or a servant of God or a messenger of God. And no one's quite sure exactly what the Pentateuch means in case by case. Regardless, it is God's presence. It, mm. This is God. Sometimes right. God's presence is made reference by a messenger of God, sort of denoting it's God's presence kind of coming to us yeah. through a form or through some means. Right. But I don't think it, the fact that it says that in the NAB translation diminishes that, no, this is God's presence. Right. Well, Being it's, messaged to us in, in a certain sense. Yeah. Right? I mean, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it's all the, the angel. Right. The, which is like how the, the Pentateuch always refers to God showing up, which, which is, is kind of weird frustrating it kind of goes to eastern theologies eastern theology eastern christian theology yeah right? eastern yeah. christian theology's idea about <clears throat> the energies of god 
Like, okay. like that there's the, the glory of God is manifested in these particular energies. And so this could actually be this kind of expression of that. I cool. don't know. I'm just seeing that. That's kind of cool. Well, it's interesting that, okay, so, oh, how do we, how do we get into this? Um, there's so much I would love to say about the burning bush, but for sake of time, we can't say all of it. Um, he's <laughs> two things. Number one, he's in the place that's literally called dryness, which means this is a dry, really arid part of the world. And we're told <coughs> other people who are more ge- geographically astute than I am know that in this part of the world, things do spontaneously combust from time to time. <laughs> so literally the idea of a bush bursting into flames is actually not all that uncommon. We know it's a, it's a fairly sulfuric um, soil in this region. It's really hot and sometimes things just burn. They catch on fire for various reasons like heat lightning and stuff. So seeing a bush that's on fire is not super duper uncommon. But what's weird about this one is that it's a bush that's on fire that not only is it talking to him, which is weird, but the bush that's talking to him is on fire and it's not being consumed. And the fathers of the church and the rabbis too, but the ancients all all had a field day with that. They're like, oh my gosh, that is such a descriptor of what God is. God is the consuming fire that doesn't destroy us when he consumes us. Like God is the fire that, that, you know, takes over our lives or, or, you know, we're supposed to have come and be a part of us, but that fire who is God doesn't destroy us. It actually strengthens us. Mm. So there's this imagery that's very beautiful, but the other piece of imagery, and I actually never really considered this. We've heard this story a million and a half times, right? The, The burning bush. We all know the burning bush. But one of the things I'd never considered, I was reading some of the ancient rabbis this morning because that's what I do. And the rabbis actually make this point. I I just hadn't thought about it. They ask this question. Wait a second. This is kind (coughs) of the first. It's the most explicit manifestation of God yet in the Bible. Yes. And and even at this point in the book of Exodus, um, God doesn't really show up in the book of Exodus until now. He's sort of in the backdrop of the narrative that's happening. Right. And now God shows up. And when God shows up kind of for the first time, you'd expect like he's speaking from the top of a mountain or from the clouds or from something really dramatic and and royal seeming and and divine. Right. But he's in a kind of lowly burning shrub (laughs) in the desert. And the rabbis actually made a big deal about how not only is it showing God's willingness, they said two things. Number one, what God is showing here is his solidarity with the suffering of his people of Israel. As they are suffering and being oppressed and kind of burning in their slavery, God enters into the lowliness and suffering of this, of this lowly bush, which shows, number one, that he is in solidarity with the suffering of his people. But the other thing it shows is that God's presence can show up in the most unlikely of circumstances, in the, the, the least likely places that you'd think God's presence would show. God, who is God, right? Mountaintop, cloud, lightning bolt, God right. is here in a humble burning shrub. And actually, some of the fathers of the church liken this to Mary and Mary's lowliness and her, hum- her humility, kind of the last place that you'd expect. And God pre- God's presence makes himself manifest in her, kind of like the burning bush, where she also is not consumed or destroyed by it. But she, he enters into this. Mm. So there's all this beautiful stuff about God's what this says about God, that he appears to Moses in this way, mm. which is just kind of beautiful. I was reflecting on that this morning. You know, it's it's funny because I, as we're talking about it, I cannot see leaves on this bush. No, I don't either. I mean, as soon as you say partially dry fire, yeah, because it's on fire. (laughs) So it's like like there's a certain sense, 
but like for some reason there's a barrenness yeah. that that is yeah. like that's important though almost that I that I perceive mm. as 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 I look upon it it's not like a, you know a nice hedge yeah no it's not like it's a not. blackberry bush you right know. a fern a fern <laughs> <laughs> it's not there is an aridness a dryness a deadness uh, at least an appearance to this especially since we're getting this in the midst of lent so we're uh, like there's no Absolutely. there's no vegetation on the altar it's a very not, lenten image right we have rocks and yeah you know r- rocks and branches but yeah. not flowers because we're not meant it's not yeah. characteristic for the season so it's so almost given to us like and as israel, an arid image and israel is in a kind of lent right now in a certain sense. Right. It's not the same, but they're suffering greatly. Yeah. <clears throat> and so the bush starts speaking. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, it's a, well, before that, he says, I have to go and look over at this I remarkable- I gotta go check this out. Yeah, he's like, he's like, what's that? Which, <laughs> don't watch the movie Exodus, that modern movie. Did you oh, watch the, the modern I was thinking movie? of the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. No. That's the image that's in my no, mind. No, there's like this new one, and there's oh. and, and uh, they have Moses, and he's like, there's some sort of like lava flow on the mountain, and his wife's <laughs> like, don't go to the mountain. And yeah, he's like, I'm going to the mountain. That's not what's and he goes, and then a rock hits him in the head, and then he starts to like hallucinate while he's like getting eaten by tar. It's a terrible rendering of this. Yeah, yeah. It's That's a, what's here. That's this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, come on. It, whereas, like, he That's like the worst interpretation you could possibly have. Yeah, you know, the movie is, and and God oh. is this like kind of puerile child that's just <laughs> oh, like geez. totally like it, it, it's, oh. it's it's really not a great. It's not a great Exodus. What story. was that adjective you just used? Puerile. What does that mean? Pueral, um, childish. Um, oh, a childish child? Kind of like yeah, table yeah, mesa. Yeah, yeah, hold on, hold on. Mesa, mesa. Okay. Define puerile. The- <laughs> puerile means childishly silly and trivial. Oh, there, there you go. Thank Thanks. you, Siri. Thanks, Siri. <laughs> very, I, li- very I, like good. I like it when she reads it out to the. Yeah, that's kind of her. So he goes up, he goes to check it out, um, and it starts saying his name. Right, Moses, Moses. But but here's what... What does Moses mean again? Uh, to be drawn out of the water. Yeah. Which is partially because that's what happens to him at the beginning of his life. Right. But it also needs to be noted that that's what he will do for the people of Israel later on as right. he draws them through the Red Sea. Yeah. So it speaks to his identity and also his vocation. So it's I, very beautiful. I'm into aquariums right now, mm. as, as they've had to hear over week after week. <laughs> but uh, there's an Israeli aquarium company called Red Sea. Nice. And, and they do a lot of really good stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Do they have a... Yeah, I, I'm not going to... Okay. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of places we could go. <laughs> um, so he, he, it says, Moses, Moses. He says, here am I. And God said, come no nearer. Stop. Don't come nearer. There's this sense, again, the rabbis made a big deal about this and what I was reading this morning of... Sometimes we forget because God is a God who makes himself lowly and accessible. And known. And known. It's easy to forget that, no, he's still God. And this is this reminder, like, you still need, this is sort of a theme to the book of Exodus, Mm. that I'm still God. I'm still much bigger than you can comprehend. Even though I've condescended to you in this way, I've come to you. I'm still God. And there's this sort of balancing act, which is interesting. And then Moses takes off his shoes, which is... Shoes, did you know this? Shoes have two, the reason, and so many religious traditions take off their shoes. Uh, Muslims take off their shoes when they're worshiping. There's synagogues in different parts of the world where the entire service, people are required to have their shoes off, right? And in, in branches of Christendom, there's this imagery of taking off our shoes because shoes, they have two images. They're a sign of impurity because they collect all the stuff that you walk through every day. So there's just a lot of gunk on your shoe, but they also reflect power, there's really? a power in shoes, and there is an impurity in shoes. And both of those things are precisely what need to be removed when we approach God. Our impurity and our own power in ourselves. 
we need to become small and we need to become humble and we purify ourselves before him, which is just, again, I was reflecting on the rabbi's kind of take on this and it was kind of beautiful Dude, that's that Moses just, does this. Yeah. I, wore, I put my sandals on just for the podcast today. And you put them on the table just for me just now yeah. Thank you. In, in, my, in my face. <laughs> but here's what's interesting. There's a lot of interesting things, but here's, here's the kicker. Um, the fact that he introduces himself and he says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is recalling salvation history. Moses is afraid to look. I saw the affliction of my people. I've hurt. I am not um, blind. I'm not um, I'm not uh, uninterested in the way that my people are suffering. This is right. this is me. Um, and he says, you're, you're going to go and actually be my instrument to set them free. And we cut out part of Moses' whining about that and his inadequacy, blah, blah, blah. But Moses says and, this. But we also cut out um, who, where he, he's going to get sent. Yeah. Yep. What? Parasite, Jebusite. Oh, yeah, yeah, to yeah, the people yeah, he yeah, will yeah, be yeah. sent to, yes. Yeah, yeah. But here's where it kind of comes back to. Um, and that, this is what I think is the most significant part of the story for the sake of salvation history. Moses says, when I go back to the people, who should I say? It's like you're on the phone, like, who should I say is calling? Like, you know, this is God here. Like, oh, who, who can, I, can I take a message? But the fact that he asks this question tells you something very important, not just about Moses, but about the state of all of Israel. So who are you again? I'm the God that created you and guided your forefathers and made you into a people. Okay, so which, one, which, which God is that? Which it, it kind of is this very subtle. You have to kind of read between the lines to catch it. Right. But it shows, number one, Israel has totally forgotten who God is. And Israel has become very polytheistic because they're living in Egypt. And the nature, the culture of Egypt is that they worship tons of different gods. And all sorts of things are deities. And it's kind of take your pick of your favorite one. And so there's this sense that when God himself shows up and speaks to Moses, he's like, all right, so which God are you again? Like, wh- which one should I tell them wants to set them free? Because there's lots of options, which shows you, it's important because it shows you the moral state of Israel at this point in salvation history. Well, also, that they need to be yeah. reintroduced wholesale to the God who is. Right. Well, what's interesting too is that the um, Egyptian uh, priests, mm. you had two names for all the gods. You had the priests who knew the true name of God. Ah, uh, yes. And then you had the common the people that everybody, else that, used, that everybody yeah. would, would be able to use. And so, yeah. so for him <laughs> saying, what is your name? He, oh, that's really in in a certain sense, he's actually becoming the priest of God. Wow, I'd never thought about that. Yeah, that he is the one who can actually call upon truly wow. the name of the Lord. That's kind of cool. But 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 then what happens is though is that he wow. becomes he establishes a priestly people. Yeah, because they are ones yeah. who also actually get to know the name of God, but they cannot speak. But it. they but they're not allowed to utter it. Well, it's funny. We should talk about the name real quick. So he says, "Who should I say is calling?" And God says, uh, "What?" The tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton, right? That this. Uh, number one, no one has ever been able to adequately interpret what this means, number one. And number two, no one actually knows exactly how this is meant to be pronounced because mm. there's no vowels attached to it. Hebrew has no vowels. And there is no Hebrew tradition that actually attaches a firm set of vowels to it. So no one knows it. And the whole Hebrew tradition is that we don't say that name. So we've traditionally always called it, it called him Yahweh, but that's inserting some vowels. And there is a, a kind of beauty to the mystery of as the tradition goes, no one knows exactly what Moses heard. We mm. just have some consonants. And it's obviously derivative of 
of the Hebrew verb, which is simply to be. So God says, what's my name? I was, I was listening to some more modern rabbinic commentaries. Yeah. This was weeks ago. There's a lot of rabbis that are convinced that God responds sarcastically. When Moses is like, so what should I say your name is? And he's like, what do you mean my name is? I am. I just am. My name. I am who I am. What do you, who do you to ask? And the rabbis all interpret this like, no, it's just God being sarcastic to Moses. He's like, what do you mean my name? I just am. Which is kind of a funny rendering of that. It really is. Which is partially true. He's like, I just, I just am. I, like, I'm not some individualized God who is getting control of crops or of water or cattle or something like that. I'm not this God who is in a category of something. Right. I just am. Right. I am all who is. And the very fact that it is simply a present tense statement right. says... I it's 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 funny because you can rend, you can you can read and, and there's been volumes written about what the tetragrammaton means and how do you render that, but it's far less about a philosophical statement. Right. I am. I think. Therefore, I am. It's not Descartes. It's not about philosophy. It's about history. I am. I am the God who is here and now, and I was then, and I guided your people, and I will set you free. I am. I am present. I am here. I am for you. I am savior. I am redeemer. I will do and I have done and I am all of these things. Which again, I think it's really easy to kind of get spun out in the philosophical sense of this. Oh, I am. Which is to lose the practical everyday thing that God is doing in a burning shrub in front of Moses. Which is as practical and as tangible as it gets. Although I guess not tangible because don't touch it. It's hot. Well, this is... See, this this is where, Scott, we... Are both and and yeah, I well, yeah, and, 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 and I and I don't mean to, I, to no, no, disparage no, no. the philosophy, but, th- but this is actually what's so powerful about <clears throat> liturgy. It's what's powerful about the 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 prophetic experience mm. is that there are these practical, immediate expressions yes. that are really critical. Like, what do you what do you mean? I, like, I'm I'm here. Yeah, I'm right. here. This is it. Right. Like, like, like right. everything. Yeah, you know. But then, but. Every single experience like that can be unpacked into its full depth. And, and so, you're right. So, and so I, like the, the it the, is a both. You know, essence and experience. You know, essence and existence, and and like the whole experience of of like who is God. Right. He knows that any anything right. that he gives himself, we're gonna we're gonna freak out about right. and up to and probably misuse today. What and misuse <laughs> and and misuse in some which is why traditionally he God when he appears in the Old Testament only appears and always appears either in the form of fire or smoke because they're the two things that you really can't make a statue out of and start worshiping, which is what Israel is prone to doing, right? Making idols out of things that they want to divinize. It's hard to make a statue of fire. I mean, I guess you can, but fire is always in flux. It's always in motion. It's never quite stable. Neither is smoke, Just right? like you. Just like me. <laughs> Um, which is God saying also, I, I cannot be compartmentalized, right? right? I can't be, which is part of what's revealed in his name. But you're absolutely right. The practical everyday revelation of God speaks to a far deeper, far bigger reality that we can never in a million years fully tap into. But it is a both and. That's important. Yeah. Which tells us what? That the Lord is kind and merciful. Because that's what, and that really is, in a certain sense, a great commentary on this. The God who is, the Lord who is above all, is not just kind in the sense, oh, he's nice. No, he's kind in the sense that he actually condescends to us and comes and is with us and present to us in his great mercy. He comes to us. He is in solidarity with us. He suffers with us. He suffers in us. He is kind and he is merciful. That's what the burning bush is expressing to Moses, Mm -hmm. that the God who is 
is also a God of solidarity with you and who suffers with you, who will set you free, who is present to you, who is speaking to you, who you have access to, which is, which is unprecedented in, in the idea of, of religion in the world, right? I, I, li- I look at this. It says, Blessed Lord, O my soul and all my being, bless his holy name. Mm. Like His holy it, name, which is... His, his which name. Which is. Which is, but it's, what is this? It's my being. Yes. And my being is that place by which I am participating within him. Mm. And that, but that, oh, that's, but that's a good insight. It was really interesting because we were at a priest penance service for the Archdiocese of Denver just yesterday, and uh, and Father Andreas Hoke, oh, yes. yes, he um, taught me scripture in seminary. Huh? But he was talking about how he, like, how when we sin, it's an expression of our being, of our soul, not just something that's exterior to us. That huh. it's a, that, that sin actually comes from the innermost place of us. And I was, Shoot. I, I know, and I, and 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 he's and he said so. Our repentance, our contrition, is oh. also meant to be come, come from the innermost mm. place of us, where we're where we're encountering God, mm. where we're actually like actually mm. bound up in some <clears throat> special way with God. So it's what the Hebrews call levav, the heart, right, the place right. of meeting, the sanctuary inside of us where we meet God and decide. Right. So, huh. so, so it's like, so it's, I, I look at this, it says huh. the Lord is kind and merciful. Well, it's like, I think it's powerful because what we see is we would think that the burning bush would, would be consumed in yeah. its flesh, but no, but it's actually being, it's burning from its soul. It's actually huh. substantially being expressed rather <laughs> than some, some, something that's external to us. So, yeah, right. so when we say like the Lord is kind and merciful, it's, it's because huh. he actually wants the 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 inner sanctum of the person to hmm. to to be caught up into the mystery of 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 his being and our being. That's that's why. Wow. That's kind of why I that's I actually cool. like one of just why I think even just podcasting podcasting weekly. It's not like like unless we have to do a rerun, but like, <laughs> but there's, there's there's something about being present in mm. the moment for what these scriptures mm. are doing. It's why it's coming yeah. every Sunday, even though we've heard it. Right. It's actually being present and letting God meet you in the immediacy of your life. Wow. And that's really good. Yeah, so that that's why that's why I would say we bless the Lord in our being. We bless Him because <laughs> because we actually need to be in touch with Him at the core of everything. Yeah, because if we're and He, he allows Himself for He allows that to happen, mm. <clears throat> which is the most incredible part of it that that's actually a possibility. Right, He is absolutely imminent, and yeah. so and and this is actually what's hard is that is that on a certain way. He does encounter us through our senses. Yeah. Well, he not in a certain way, in a real way. He really does. He reveals himself. And so yeah. we see him revealing himself, but in a mysterious way that forces us to actually examine things mm. in, in a vision that's that's deeper because mm. it's because he does this though, it's very, very tempting to not to bless the Lord externally, not from our soul. Not from our Oh, I see it now. Yes. So, so, so what the psalm is encouraging is the is not just an external blessing, but right. deep Yeah. Which is actually good. which is actually what we're doing in Corinthians. I, that's a great segue. Yes. Corinthians, this is fascinating. This is this is a really fascinating moment in the letter of First Corinthians because where it comes contextually 
So Cor- the, Cor- the, the Corinthians are a disaster, right? The, the church in Corinth is also a disaster. Right. There are these people who are really well-formed. They've been really well-catechized. They know the faith, and that's actually one of their biggest problems, right? Paul actually spends more time with the Corinthians, I think, than any other church. He's there for like a year and a half or something. I mean, it's a long time. They've been taught well, and they're really big on the fact that they know a lot. Right. And that knowledge, the head knowledge, is actually leading to all of their problems, right? So where we are in the letter at this point, we're in the section, chapters 8 through 10 are all about the idea of meat, which is an appropriate thing to talk about in Lent, I guess, when we're not supposed to eat meat on Fridays. But but their problem with meat is this. They're, <clears throat> and it, it's not really about meat. It's about a deeper problem. But they're, they're having this problem where a bunch of these Corinthians, Corinthian Christian leaders are still going to all the pagan temples and the pagan ceremonies. Right. And people are like, wait, what, what are you doing? I thought you were a Catholic now. And their argument is like, well, wait a second. We can do whatever we want to because if we acknowledge that all of these pagan deities, kind of like what was in Egypt, right? The, the Apollos and Zeus and Aphrodite and all of these temples that are in Corinth. Artemis. We know that they're not gods. We know that there's only one God and he is manifest in Jesus Christ. And if only God is God, then Zeus isn't a god. And Aphrodite isn't a god. Artemis, they're not, they're not gods. They're nothing. And so if we know that, then yeah, we can go to the pagan temples because we're not worshiping anything. Those are nothing. And so what does it matter if I go to a pagan temple if I know that that pagan temple is just emptiness? It's just a building. And so they're, they're basically, but it's, it's the selfish thing of trying to have it both ways. They're like, I still like all my friends and I really like those ceremonies and they're kind of fun and they're enjoyable and we like to overeat and get drunk at those things and that's fun. Because they're they're pleasing to the senses, but I don't believe in the gods. Like I don't I don't I don't buy into the philosophy. So I'm just kind of kind of have my feet in both worlds. I'm going to straddle the fence. And I'm a good Catholic. I still go to mass. I do all the things. But because I know who Jesus is, it really doesn't matter what else I do. Mm. That, that's their argument. And Paul's counter argument is: Wait a second. What about those people who he, he messes with them? And he's like, okay, great. So you have this great knowledge. Like you know that those aren't gods. But what about the people who are weaker in their faith, who are brand new, who are exploring Christianity, who see you, this wise, quote-unquote, leader, going to a pagan temple, and they're totally misled, and they're totally scandalized, or they don't understand the faith because they see you doing this thing that seems incongruent. And their answer is, who cares what they think? Who cares if we lead them to scandal? That's their problem. We know what we know, and that's all we care about. So our example to the rest of the world, people being misled by things we do, that's their problem. That ain't my problem. Right. And Paul's like, no, that's not how it works. Like, yeah, you're right. And Paul actually just finished a long section where he talked about rights. Yeah, you have the right to do all these things, I suppose, because you're free, blah, blah, blah. But your duty to your fellow believer is to sacrifice. What are you willing to give up? And in the midst of this whole kind of discourse on this, he comes to chapter 10. And that's where he brings it back to the Exodus story, brings it back to Moses. And he's like, look, what you're all saying is, you, you supposedly wise Christian leaders is, I know what's up. I've experienced the mass. I've had the sacraments. I've been baptized. Like, I got all the stuff. That's me. That's what I've acquired. What's what I know. It's what I understand. And now I'm going to live how I'm going to live. And Paul says, oh, yeah, I've heard something like that before. It was kind of like the Exodus, where if you remember the Exodus generation, they all, the, the common word in this passage that we get this week is all. 
they all, the whole Exodus generation, the people that Moses, who was called by God from a burning bush, who revealed his name, who showed himself to be a redeemer, they all experienced the Passover. They all passed through the Red Sea. They all were experienced this kind of baptism through the water, right? They all ate the manna that fell from heaven. They saw bread falling from heaven, all of them. They all saw drank the water that came out of rock. They all experienced the supernatural wonders, all, all, all. But guess what? Most of them perished in the wilderness and did not go to the promised land. Right. Because having access to this kind of baptism through the Red Sea, to eating the bread come down from heaven, the drink from the rock, there weren't like lucky charms that allowed them to be flawless. Lucky charms. Lucky charms. They all experienced this and most of them died in the wilderness in their sin. So just the fact that you go to mass every Sunday, that you were baptized, that you have all these things... You think that actually makes you better than the Exodus generation? They saw it firsthand. They witnessed God's glory, and most of them died in the wilderness. Do you think you're any better? It's this warning to those who have had God revealed in this profound, practical, everyday way, who have been invited into this deep experience where we bless the Lord with all of our souls, and we end up just blessing him in external ways and then doing whatever else we want to with our souls. Right. That's what's going on in Corinth. Right. They're doing the opposite of what you just explained. And Paul says, hey, the Exodus is a great example of how badly that can go. Right. Which is, which is just like, therefore, whoever thinks he's standing secure should take care not to fall. Yeah. Like, okay, if you're standing secure, then guess what? Or who thinks they're standing secure. Right. That's the operative word there. Right. Which is... Who goes home justified, the guy who says, look how great I am, or the guy who can't even lift, lift his eyes, because in the core of his being, Which he's... is Moses, by the way, who in the first reading could not lift his eyes and look because he recognized what he was seeing. Right. Because in the core of his being, he actually longs for communion with God, but, right. but it takes his shoes off. He yes. does take his shoes off. Right. Exactly. I'm going to relieve myself of the power. Right. I'm going to I'm going to actually I'm become purified. I'm going to say, you know what? I actually have to be pure and mm. free of power to enter into your presence and then at that point I can exactly. actually have that, which which gets us again right into the gospel. I think so. So the gospel, this is a weird little passage that kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> Jesus is talking about current events. Um and, and and weird ones because they're they're ones that we don't really have a reference point because he's literally talking about news that's happening in their day. This just in. Pilate had mingled their blood when the Galileans fell into the tower. So um so some people told Jesus. I love your old time radio voice, dude. And I love just a little bit of like telegraph. This just in. Um, some people. So these guys, these people came up to Jesus and they told him about some Galileans, people up in the Galilee, right? Yep. Whose blood Pilate had mingled with the blood of their sacrifices, which sounds like overly poetic and esoteric. It just means they got killed, right? Pilate killed them because they were rebellious and treasonous. Pilate was the uh, the uh, ruler over that part of Judea, right? Mm. Jesus said to him, so they're, they're basically saying, hey, did you hear about the, and, and what, we, we know what's happening culturally at the time, right? Everybody and their 18 dogs are all looking for a political messiah to set them free from the Romans. So, I mean, Jesus is one of probably hundreds 
of guys who are going and making speeches on hillsides in the hill country of Judea, right? Who are who Lothar? Are, that's what um in of Gre- the hill people. The dude, the, the um uh, Jethro in Greek. If you read it funny, it said Lothar, dude. <laughs> that's what oh I was gosh. trying to get at earlier. Of the ended my saying the hill country. Yeah, absolutely, Lothar. Just <laughs> so messed oh my up. Gosh, it's so messed up. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so everybody's looking for a messiah on the Mas- hill country. In the no, because that's actually where the rebels all went to make their s- political speeches. Because yeah. you couldn't do it in the cities, because Caesar and his people were all you know up in your grill and, and listening to everything. So if you wanted to give kind of the the um, you know the 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 uh, what would you call it the the rebels who wanted to kind of do these undercover underground coup attempts right to Rome to try to have political revolution, they would gather in the wilderness. They would go into the hill country and they would give speeches and they would rally the troops and they would build little militias, right, to attack. Because everybody knew, all the Jewish people knew, that God in the time of the Roman Empire, based on a bunch of of prophecies from Daniel, everybody knew that God was coming soon and he was going to redeem us. Now, nobody knew that the Messiah was going to be God. Everybody thought God was going to send somebody like a Moses, right? Right. To go and set the people free again, because that's what we're oppressed against, just like Egypt. And so some people are telling Jesus, hey, did you hear about that group of rebels, that militia who were up in the Galilee and Pilate killed him? He mingled their blood with the sacrifices, right? Put it poetically. And Jesus said in reply, hey, wait a second. Yeah, I did hear about that. In other words, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were greater sinners than all the other, because they were like, oh my gosh, can you believe that? They totally got caught, and they totally got hosed by pile. Oh my gosh, this is crazy, right? He's like, do you think they were any different, that they suffered any differently than the other Galileans? By no means. I tell you, if you do not repent, and repent, by the way, that's not a theological word yet. It literally means turn around, turn back from what you were doing. Unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or what about those 18 people? Did you hear about that? Those people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam in Jerusalem fell on them, which is another occasion of a group of militia who were trying to stage a little small level rebellion in Jerusalem, and they got crushed by a falling building for their, for their rebellion. Do you think they were more guilty than anybody else who lived in Jerusalem? By no means, but I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. There is an utter practicality to what Jesus just said. He said, if you keep following false political military messiahs, you will literally be crushed by falling buildings. That's what he said explicitly, which is funny, because in about 40 years, when we eventually have Jerusalem go to war with Rome for rebellion, and Rome comes in and shuts them up and destroys and obliterates Jerusalem, guess how most of them are killed? Falling buildings. When the temple falls on them, when they sought refuge in the temple of God Yikes. and the Romans destroy it and a building falls on them. This is a very, this is not this abstract theology. It's saying if you follow after false messiahs who are promising worldly goods and worldly comfort and riches, then you will be like all of these other people who are following false messiahs you will have the same kind of punishment. Not because God is mean and angry and he's going to punish you, but the consequences are simply logical. If you're following after these things, you're going to reap the, the, the consequences from it. Right. The irony, of course, to this, and this is the nature of Jesus' own kingship, right? If Jesus is king, it means he's king of all of his people. And all of his people means all of his people. And, and the king, as we've talked about before, always embodies the fate of his people. He takes on his people's suffering. That's what God does in Exodus, right? right? And that's what the king is always supposed to do. 
And so Jesus, how does Jesus die? Jesus dies by being accused and found guilty of treason against the Roman Empire, which is the one thing that he's continually telling people in the gospel not to do, (laughs) which they will all do and they will perish and either be crushed by a building or crucified for it. And it's ironic that Jesus actually dies in punishment for their sin. Literally, practically, he suffers the punishment of treasonous rebels. Mm. And then he goes on to tell the ones who do follow him, who follow the right Messiah, hey, you guys, you're also going to be, remember he tells his apostles, you're going to be taken before courts and the Sanhedrin and the high priests, and they're going to accuse you of things, and they're going to put you up to death, and you're going to be crucified. And he suffers their fate too. Basically, what he says is, if you follow me, you're going to suffer. If you don't follow me, if you follow these other messiahs, you're going to suffer. And I will take on the suffering of all of you. Whether you follow me or not, I will take on your fate. I will carry it on my back. But then when he says, this is where it gets really weird. Then he told him a parable. What? Figgy, figgy, fig. There was once a person who had a fig tree planted in his orchard. And when he came in search of the fruit, but he found none, he said to the gardener, for three years now I've come in search of fruit on this fig tree, but I haven't found any. So cut it down. Why should it exhaust the soil? So in, in throughout the Old Testament, Israel and Jerusalem specifically are always described as a fig, tr- a fig tree or a vineyard. Those are kind of the two go-to metaphors for Israel. And God is always the planter or the gardener, right? Who gardens and does... <laughs> These things, it's this common metaphor in the Old Testament. And then, of course, it relates to the fig tree that Jesus curses. But basically what he's saying is, think of it this way, you guys. You're you're talking about all these rebel groups who are trying to do these things and overthrow evil politically, which is not the way to overthrow evil. It's far deeper than your politics. And he's like, look, there was a person, in other words, God, who planted this fig tree in an orchard. That's Jerusalem. It's the temple in the world. And when he came in search of fruit, he found none. Because guess what? As he says in the other Gospels, Jerusalem has become fruitless. You're not bearing fruit. It's acting externally, right? Right. Like it's doing all these great things. But the people of God have stopped bearing fruit. And so they say, let's just cut it down. Let's get rid of it. But the gardener says, no, wait. We have to wait. Let's give it time. Literally, it says three years, which I don't think is coincidental that that's how long Jesus' ministry is. No, he says three. Now, I've searched for fruit for three years. Give me one extra year. Give me one extra year, which I I don't know what the one extra year is. This year also. This year also. Maybe it'll bear fruit in the future. If not, (laughs) you can cut it down. I always thought it was fascinating. And again, take this for whatever you will, that Jesus keeps saying, All of these consequences are going to come on you if you follow false messiahs. you got to follow me. Stop putting your faith in the temple. Stop putting your faith in all of these externals. And he is point blank, right before his death, he is as explicit as you can possibly be. Remember, he says, not one stone will be left on another on this city. And it will be thrown down because you've made it into a den of robbers and thieves. And you've made it offensive to my father. His house has become a den of robbers. You've done all these things and therefore the temple will be destroyed. But ironically, the temple's not destroyed for 40 more years. And you got to wonder, like, wait, Jesus said it's all going to happen. And then he waits a super long time. And I think this little parable is the answer to why he does that. It's the same reason that when God decided he wanted to wipe out the world in the time of Noah, he finds a guy and gives him a job that's going to take 120 years because God has no intention. He doesn't desire to punish in that way. What he desires is repentance. And so the fig tree is the icon of Jerusalem. It's of the people of God. 
And he's like, look, they're on the wrong path. And I want so desperately to give them time to turn their hearts back to me. But if they refuse perennially to turn their hearts to me, then there just has to be consequence. Because I will not let a house to my own name be seen as a, as a stumbling block to the rest of the world. Just like in the Corinthians, I will not let the leaders of my church be continually and forever leading people away from me. Yeah. It has to stop. Yet I'm a God who is kind and merciful and I want to give them as long as possible to repent because I want them. I don't want to punish. Right. I want their hearts back. Which is which? I think I think part of the answer. And again, we remember that numbers are about quality, not quantity necessarily. Right. So, what were the three phases of Exodus? Forty, forty, forty. Oh. And what are we in right now? We're in the next forty. Oh we're my! In, we're oh in. My. That, oh my! We're, we're in that year of let's cultivate it, prune it, so that it may become able to bear fruit. Wow! It's almost like, and if not. Right, because it has to go. Because it's saying it's kind of like we're going to accompany Jesus on his exodus. Wow, which is actually not the three periods of forty that we see in for Moses's life, but for the the a whole another forty. It's a whole another forty, but it's the forty. It's the faithful forty. Wow, the faithful forty. That sounds like a diet. (laughs) Whole thirty, the faithful forty. We're in the faithful forty right now. Oh, we got the podcast title. That's good. Oh, that's uh, good. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a way to kind of see something new. like Because right. that's really what we're doing is we're like, oh, we're looking to bear fruit, bear fruit that will last. And that's what we're meant to be in the midst of the church. And that's actually part of the, the season of the church, the, the wide church, the church in Colorado, the church in the United States, the church overall is saying like, nope, it's time to prune and to cultivate and to say, you know what? And we're in a time of pruning, big right, time right, right. now. Right, and it's, and it's, a pure, it's a time of purification. Yeah. Specifically, what? To bear fruit, because we're not mm. bearing the fruit that we're actually meant to be bearing in worldwide blessing. And the world looks at us and they're scandalized. They're scandalized. And right. because we've taken on power and yep. we haven't purified our hearts. We haven't taken our shoes off. We have got, we've got to take our shoes off and we've got to actually get humble before the Lord and yes. and and turn our hearts and repent and, turn back right yeah. to the one who is yes it's not the one who is now mm. Mm. who is still in the burning bush with us he's still suffering with us in solidarity with us he's not right. other than he's not off sitting on his throne you know thinking what schmoes we are right he's actually with us still so, in this so if you think you're having a good Lent <laughs> and you're standing secure, it's oh, time to turn. Look out, you might be a falling tower. Right. Don't be a falling tower. Yeah. So don't far let a tower fall on you. Yeah. So far Scott's got mold. <laughs> I've got I've got um identity, I, identity theft. theft. Yeah. I mean I'm like It's it, been a hard lent. Man. I'm like it must I was, it must be lent. It's mold here. in my basement, by the way, just to clarify where my mold is. It, that sounds it's gross. not in his hair. No. Or he does my not, ears. Yeah, yeah, he does not have moldy ears. <laughs> Thanks, man. Hey, wow. Thank you, Scott. Oh, that was exhausting. Two weeks from now, we're going to be doing a live podcast. You better believe we will. Yeah. To celebrate the tail end of Lent, we're trying to raise some money again for our ministry to support the work that we're doing here. Um, if you're in Boulder or around Boulder, come to Drogo's Coffee Shop the 4th <laughs> yeah. of April. Yep. April 4th, 10 a.m. We're going to live stream it. It's going to be a blast. We're raising some money for the ministry, so pray for us. We will pray for you. Okay. Okay, see you then. Bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash AICT. 
You can find the Lanky Guys at lankyguys.org, and you can send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.